Hello and welcome to the third episode of Outside the Screen, a podcast all about screens in the lives of children and families. I'm law professor and child rights advocate Liz Hansley. And I'm child psychiatrist and stand-up comedian Dr Kim Lee. We're bringing you the podcast because we know how hard it is to raise children in a technology-centric world and we want to help. So what have we got lined up for this episode, Liz? Today on the show, we're going to hear a review of Flight of the Navigator and we'll be shooting the breeze about what Australians really think about children's online privacy. But first up, we've got... Paper Round, our regular segment where we look at the research that's coming out and demystify it so you can better inform your family's decisions about how you engage with screens. Today, we're discussing a study from Spain about emotional intelligence and cyberbullying. So stay tuned. As Kim said, today in Paper Round, we're looking at some research out of Spain. I guess we like Spain a lot Mm -hmm. at the moment, don't we? About uh, emotional intelligence and cyberbullying. Kim, why did they do this research? Yeah, well, I guess we've always known uh, a lot about face-to-face bullying and cyberbullying has become more of a problem But they wanted to see what were the characteristics in terms of the emotional intelligence and empathy ability of not only the cyber aggressors, but the cyber victims. Okay. And how did they do the research? They went around to secondary schools in Spain. They looked at 1,300 teenagers and they gave them surveys based on people who had been cyber bullied and people who were um, cyber aggressors themselves. And then they also gave them tests on how their empathy abilities were and their emotional intelligence. What did they find? Well, they found that the cyber aggressors were actually quite savvy in terms of their emotional intelligence. They understood their emotions and they were very clear with their emotions, but their ability to deal with problems in a pro-social way were impaired. So they were more likely to be aggressive. They might have witnessed aggression growing up. They might have um, been victims of aggression growing up and had some uh, sense of normalization of aggression and desensitization to aggression. Mm. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, violent video games and media, mass media, all those effects have some element there. And in terms of the cyber victims, their emotional intelligence overall was quite impaired. So they were not very savvy. So we we know this through um, bullying um, research that young people's ability to get their way out or detect that someone could be an aggressor and um, deal with it effectively and not react in a way that would um, attract more bullying makes them an easy target. Mm. Is there an element of victim blaming if you frame it that way? Like how do they work Mm. around that? Um, In a sense, uh, from a statistical and research point of view, yes. It's saying that if your child has poor emotional intelligence, then they can be an easy target, not just face-to-face, but online. So they'll put themselves in a situation that they find very hard to get out of. You You know how like people talk and comment on certain news articles and you'll see someone comment and then they just sort of leave themselves wide open for people to pile on. Yep. Sometimes it's best just to walk away. But if your child doesn't have the ability to walk away or is not emotionally in tune with themselves and just has to type back, that can create mm. a, a funnel effect, I guess. Yeah, that's mm. really interesting. And I was just thinking the difference between victim blaming and empowerment mm. is that empowerment is what you do before the fact. Uh-huh. And then if people you know, haven't taken the steps that they could be taking to protect themselves, yeah. then, I mean, it doesn't have to be victim blaming, but it can be just a taking stock of the situation, saying, yeah. how can this be avoided in future? Mm-hmm. You know, yes, the, the aggressor shouldn't have been aggressive, mm. and that's the main part of the 
the problem, but there's other aspects to it that we can all take yeah, on board. But and, yeah, obviously, and, yeah, I mean, cyber aggressors need to take responsibility and um, some would argue that cyberbullying, when it leads to really negative consequences and harm, people should be punished for that. Yeah, yeah, mm. sure. So we need to be careful yeah. how we talk about these things. Yeah. So it doesn't sound like we're blaming the victim, mm. but at the same time, you know, if you come in at the right time, you could be empowering people to protect yep. themselves. Yeah, and, and children should be able to feel safe online and you know move freely online and play the games they want to play and interact on social media how they want to um, interact. But obviously there are um, certain um, limitations and um, etiquettes and ways you mm. should be behave online yeah and and ways that you can keep yourself safe and uh and that parents can help kids to learn to keep themselves safe and that's what this is all about isn't it okay um so was there anything surprising about what they found did you think does it fit in with what you already knew yeah i mean the second part was the um empathy of the cyber aggressors and they found that the cyber aggressors had impaired empathy so you know, there's that's a double double whammy effect where already when you're communicating with someone online, you can be anonymous. There's another layer of you can't see their reaction immediately, and it's much easier to say something online and not feel any sort of empathy for the people who could be reading or receiving that message. Mm-hmm. It struck me as slightly surprising that these aggressors. Well, no, okay. It, it's not so much that it struck me as surprising what you were saying about the aggressors, but just we, we don't usually think about the aggressors as people mm. and that's something that we should be yeah. doing, isn't or it? Yeah, or children, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. You know, they're, they're growing up too. They're yeah. learning how to behave and how to mm-hmm. make their way in the world and, and yeah. they're, they're, they need help yeah. just as much as, as, the, yeah. uh, as yeah. the victims do. Yeah, yeah. So will the finding affect your practice as a psychiatrist? Yes, I think it will affect my practice because I'll have more empathy for cyber bullies or cyber aggressors. I mean, they talk about it as cyber aggression. I guess they're trying to get remove this bullying um, terminology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you, know, you know, even just the change of language and understanding that language is very powerful will change the way I approach my mm. practice. It's kind of interesting that they had that change in terminology that they're not using bullying, mm. they're using aggression. What, what yeah. lies behind that, do you think? Yeah, I think, I guess it's a anti-stigmatization strategy. And I guess we're trying to, I guess, understand that children, well, we're talking about children here, teenagers, and I guess there's a sense of hope that we can change someone's trajectory and turn them from a cyber aggressor to someone who can deal with their problems mm. in a more effective way. Yeah. And I guess aggression sounds more like a behavior yeah. than an identity yeah. because bullying is something that bullies do, mm. whereas aggression is something that anybody can yeah. do anytime and it doesn't yeah. sort of change who you are. Yeah. It's just something that you can change what you do. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. So when it comes to parenting or caring for children, what can those people get out of this research or what yeah. advice could you give? Yeah, it's, it's, this is a really critical question and I think um, parents need to be mindful of their own behaviour, um, role modelling, parents who I think parents should be looking at how they behave online and offline and also being there for their children, being emotionally available for their children um, having lots of different ways to describe how your child's feeling, mirroring how they're feeling, so they can develop and have their own emotions validated by you. I gather that uh, emotional intelligence is something that can be learned, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. 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 So I think when we use the word intelligence, a lot of people tend to think, well, you know, you're either intelligent or you're not. Mm. And, and that yeah. may well be true of intellectual intelligence, but yeah. Yeah, with emotional intelligence, it yeah. definitely seems to be yeah. something you can train yourself yeah. for and yeah. get better at. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks for that, Kim. Let's move on to the next bit. 
Well, there were a couple of pretty interesting tips from Kim about how to support your child emotionally. And the paper was by Lucia Segura and colleagues. The title is Empathy and Emotional Intelligence in Adolescent Cyber Aggressors and Cyber Victims. It was published in Volume 17 of the journal Environmental Research and Public Health, and we'll put full details in the show notes. Now it's time for our movie review, and Martha is going to take us through another well-loved classic. Flight of the Navigator is a 1986 film, and you may remember it from when you were a child. It's definitely got a retro vibe, but it really is a great family film that has stood the test of time. If you want to introduce your children to the genre of sci-fi or fantasy, this is a really great one. It tells the story of Davy, a 12-year-old boy who has a time-bending extraterrestrial experience. He has an investigation by NASA and then an exhilarating ride in a spaceship. Davy is under investigation by NASA and must stay in a room. It's got a TV and it's kind of fun, but really Davy feels quite trapped and all he wants is to be at home with his parents and life to be as normal. Luckily for Davy, he finds a way to break free of his situation and gets to pilot his very own spaceship and it's extremely exciting. Although this is a great film for the whole family, I would say please be cautious of showing this to children under the age of six as some of them may find some of the scenes quite scary. You can look at the full review on the ACCM website which will help you decide whether this is appropriate for your child. So if you like sci-fi and you want to revisit your youth and watch it with your own children, I'd highly recommend Flight of the Navigator. It's a fantastic film and great for a rainy day. You can see it on Stan and you can read the full review on ACCM's website. And when Martha talks about the ACCM website, that's childrenandmedia.org.au. You can find the reviews by clicking on the Movie Reviews tab, then you can sort the list or search by title alphabetically, by age suitability, by classification or by date added. All of the reviews are prepared by people with training in child development and they cover every G and PG title released in Australian cinemas since 2002, as well as selected M-rated movies and some that are available on streaming services like that one. There are also reviews of game style apps and apps that may appeal to young children. Again, it's www.childrenandmedia.org.au. You might also like to join the CMA Facebook community facebook.com forward slash Australian Council on Children and the Media, all one word. More details later on how to keep in touch and give feedback. Now it's time to have a chat about our policy development of the day. Liz is going to take us through a recent report about Australian attitudes to children's privacy. So Liz, children's online privacy is a bit of a hot topic lately and the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner recently put out a report about Australian attitudes to privacy so it seems like a good time for us to have a bit of a chat about that. We know that children have a right to privacy under the Convention on the Rights of the Child. So Liz, what does that mean in day-to-day life? What kinds of practices might be of concern in that respect? Well, there are a couple of things. One of them is when companies track children's location and their online habits. Mm. So uh, sometimes even that they can put that information together so they are able to infer sensitive information, like uh, if the child's got a health condition or something like that, mm. they can, can sometimes put the information together in that way. Right. Uh, but also just knowing where they are at any given time. Mm-hmm. There's some apps that 
kind of have to do that, like Pokemon Go, for yeah. example. Yeah, like, you know, you get Pokestops and you have to be there at a certain time so yeah. they know exactly where you are. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So it, it goes with the territory of the game. Uh, but then there are others where you wouldn't necessarily expect it to know where you are and, and parents wouldn't necessarily expect that, uh, that right. the app is tracking the child in that way. Right. So that's one. The other one is their personal information. Mm. And then in particular, when they... S- when they on-sell the information to third right. parties, okay. uh, that, that's a bit of a concern. There's always a question whether children are able to consent to that, whether parents can consent on their behalf and so on. Okay. And so should parents be able to consent on behalf of their child to the collection of personal information? Well, there's a real debate about that. I think personally, possibly not, because there are a lot of things that we don't allow parents to consent to on behalf of their children. We don't allow them to consent to drinking alcohol or smoking, for example, or seeing R-rated movies. So there's nothing really particularly dangerous about saying parents, you know, you, you can't consent to this. Let's just you know, leave it until the child's older before we do this. So it, it's really not too much of a stretch to say that we don't ever think it's going to be in children's interests for parents to consent to the sharing of that information with third parties. There are also really big difficulties when it comes to just how do you set up a system for this? You know, if you decide, okay, we're going to allow parents to give consent to this, but where do you draw the line? What are the processes for making sure that you really are talking to the parent and you aren't just talking to the child, for example? Mm-hmm. Um, just... How do you do that? So it, it's a bit of a bit of a problem and, and an ongoing debate, of course. I've just given a few views, but of course there's another view that says, well, children should be able to get access to things and, and if they need their parents' consent, they should be able to get it. So there's that view as well. Okay. So what did this survey tell us about parents' attitudes to children's online privacy? Well, it generally showed that parents are very concerned about online privacy and the kinds of practices that I talked about a minute ago, parents are uncomfortable about them. But to me, the most interesting finding is that 82% of parents want children empowered but protected. And in a way, it's surprising that anybody disagreed with that. I want to know about the other 18% because obviously for children to be empowered but protected is a great outcome. It's just, you know, how do we achieve that? It's maybe an interesting question to ask, but whether we can operationalise it is another matter. Another thing that we found out about parents' attitudes to children's online privacy is that they think that children can consent to handing over personal information at 13. Mm. What do you think about that based on your expertise, Kim? I mean, if the parents had a discussion and gave them the for and against and really gave them the options and they had a well-rounded capacity to make consent, you have to be explained the different sides of the argument and then... Um, relay that information back to show that you understood it and that you've made a decision. I guess in terms of medical decision-making, around 14 to 16 is when patients, young patients, children, teenagers, um, around 14 to 16, they can start saying, you know, I want to see the doctor by myself or make Mm -hmm. some decisions around my treatment. In terms of privacy, I think, yeah, 13 sounds a little bit young for me. It's really interesting what you just said because what you talked about was a process. It's an ongoing process that starts Mm. a long time before the decision actually gets Uh made and uh, there isn't much discussion here about that process. I think it's reflected a little bit in the report and I'll I'll put a link to the report in the show notes so people can have a closer look. um, And I I think, you know, for the average 13-year-old who wants to log in the latest game or download something, they're not going to want to – I mean, I can't be bothered reading all the information about um, things. I'll go like, I'll just tick accept, please. But – you know, for a young person, the implications 
of that information being shared, I think, can be quite dangerous. There was also some interesting discussion about businesses because mm-hmm. there's a recognition that, well, th- these people who are collecting all of this information, they're businesses and they use it for commercial purposes. And so there were questions about what do businesses have to do or what should businesses be doing to keep children safe? Yes. Um, and, and that's always a big question because if the ultimate answer here is for technology to be made safe by design, you know, if that's the, the gold standard in attending to children's needs and interests as media users, well, we really need to be looking at well, what do businesses do because they're the ones that, uh, that create the platforms and the content and so on. Now, the parents who responded to the survey certainly saw businesses having a role in verifying the age of a child before collecting any data, making sure they only collect the minimum data necessary to provide the service. And and that's a really interesting point, isn't it? That you don't want businesses taking advantage of kids to grab hold of information that they don't really need Mm. in order to provide whatever the service is that they're giving to the kid or selling. But at the same time, business is very unlikely to do any of that of its own accord. So to me, government really has a big role as well in Mm. in regulating all kinds of online practices. Yeah. And an overwhelming majority of the parents in the survey said that they would be in favour of educating children on privacy issues. What what do you think of that comment? <laughs> well, um, yeah, nobody's ever against education. You know, again, I want to talk to the, the 15% of, of parents who said, no, 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 we don't want education. Uh, it's a very hard case to make. You know, education always sounds like a very constructive and reasonable solution. But in my view, we shouldn't be putting too much emphasis on it because children have differing capacities to learn what they're being taught. You know, that, that's education. You know, you get different outcomes with different people from mm. education. And if we really want to be keeping the, the vast majority of children safe online, uh, we need to be doing a bit more. So again, education is great and it can be empowering and so on, but it's no substitute for safety by design. Mm. And why did they only report what parents had to say about children's interests? Isn't this something we should all take an interest in? Well, I found that pretty interesting, actually, the way that they surveyed 3,000 people and then they reported what the 800-odd parents within that group had to say about children. I'd be really interested to know what the society as a whole thinks about children. We all have an interest in children growing up happy and healthy, even if they're not actually our own sons and daughters. So it would be really interesting to to know. It's, it's interesting to imagine what it would look like if we had more recognition of, of those interests. And so now that this report is out, what else is going on with privacy? Well, there's a review of the law going on, which I won't go into any detail about now. Um, I, have, I will post a link to our submission that ACCM put in. I'll put that in the show notes so listeners can follow up if they're interested. But uh, briefly, the Attorney General is... Uh, doing this review of privacy law and hasn't really had anything at all to say about kids in it yet. Mm. So we've uh, tried to put that in front of him and say, come on, let's think about kids in this context and uh, we'll um, report back and let people know how we go with that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's about all we have time for today. Yes, that's a wrap for episode three. We'd really love to have your feedback, so please get in touch either through our Facebook page or you can email us at outsidethescreenpod at gmail.com. You can also catch up on all things gaming addiction related on my website, cgiclinic.com, and you can even book a telehealth consultation with me and your child. Or if you really like us, you can help by becoming a subscriber on Substack. 
Details are in the show notes along with a range of further info about the things we've been discussing. Finally, you can rate and review us on your listening platform to make it easier for others to find us. And And this this has been been the team from Outside the Screen. Screen.